Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Daniel Fagella, CEO of Emerge. Emerge is a AI consulting company that has consulted into very many large companies as to how AI is going to transform their business and how they can start working towards that now. And with that, here's my interview with Daniel. Good morning, Dan. Morning, Jason. Glad to be here. Good. Thanks for joining me, at least remotely. So Dan Fagella of Emerge, tell me about Emerge and what it is you do. Yeah. So Emerge, kind of the, the short version here would be we help business and government leaders make productive use of artificial intelligence. We essentially overview the landscape of applications and implications of AI and sort of understand maybe what's making a realistic impact in terms of return on investment, what's maybe a little bit of a more risky move, and what are maybe the critical capabilities that are going to define industries in the future. So people in big banking companies or pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, uh, will come to us for those kinds of particular insights. And that's the business we're in. So custom research and kind of advisory. Um, and then we publish a lot of free stuff online as well, but it's normally big contracts, big companies. Excellent. So how'd you get into this space in the first place? Yeah, I, um, I went to graduate school to study uh, not machine learning. I went to graduate school to study human learning. So human learning is the psychology and neuroscience of skill acquisition. So this was my graduate school studies at the University of Pennsylvania, did the expensive Ivy League thing, paid for it by running a martial arts academy. And I, I just really wanted to get into learning in general. And while I was doing this and kind of getting into at least the lighter levels of the neuroscience and understanding the, the psychological models and the real basis of the research there. This is 2011 when there were rustles in the academic breeze that, hey man, you know all this neuro stuff and all this learning stuff, you know they're getting machines to do that. And this is just when kind of image recognition applications were kind of becoming neat and machine learning was doing a little bit of a something. And so by the time I got out of graduate school, I, I almost kind of convinced myself I got the wrong degree. Um, and then let's say <laughs> a year, a year or so after, although I can't necessarily say that. So the, the business that I started that funded Emerge was a Inc 5,000, like multimillion dollar e-commerce company called science of skill, which was built off of the study of that psychology, basically applying that to combat sport and self-defense and other things. Mm -hmm. so it was like an online publishing business. So, you know, something good span out of graduate school, yep. but I also had a big realization that by golly, this stuff will be important in those doggone machines. The capability space of these machines is increasing, and I should look at what the heck that means for humanity. So that was the, the wake-up call. So by the time about, you know, by the time I got out of grad school, it was way on my radar. About a year after grad school, I decided uh, that's going to be my life, is understanding the grand implications of this stuff. And I thought, uh, what better way than to kind of convey its relevance to um, leaders of big companies and governments? Excellent. So the reason for having on the podcast was this, to discuss basically the trends we're seeing in AI and its application within fintech. And specifically, you know, start, we're really at a nascent stage right now. So let's talk about some of the more recent implementations and like what is, what is actual tangible value versus kind of just headline catching. So what examples can yeah, you give me yeah. of things you've seen that worked? Sure, sure. We can talk about kind of the full landscape and, and there's ways to suss out from the outside, even if you don't want to do the kind of analysis that we're forced to do. What's pretty clearly garbage versus pretty clearly something that could be valuable. If we talk about 
applications where there's fruitful promise today, I can give you a couple examples that are potentially worthwhile. So one of these, so again, there's a lot of things that are in real baby steps, real R&D, real like press release, but we're not delivering any value. In terms of things that are almost unquestionably in many locations uh, delivering value, here's a fistful for you, Jason. So uh, a fistful we start off with uh, would be fraud detection. So this has to do with credit card payments. This has to do with bank transactions and money laundering. Um, Being able to suss out anomalies and anomalous activity in finance is a completely viable, powerful use case of artificial intelligence. In the future, essentially any modern data security application is going to be predicated on machine learning. In the future, everything in terms of fraud detection or money laundering detection uh, will be predicated on machine learning. And there's many applications in this space. So if we want to find out and flag appropriately which bank wires are most likely to be fraud, there are systems that can detect sort of the broad patterns of normal, Jason, within normal bank transactions. That is to say, transactions that aren't funding, you know, some cartel or some illegal operation. And that makes sense. I mean, these are typically layered transactions, right? It's not just one or two transactions. They go through these cycles, they break them up, they combine them again. So being able to recognize those patterns for a human being is just not as easy. Yeah, it's it's hard. And the the tough thing, the deal about this, so why machine learning is, is needed here, and this is a representative use case of why it's needed in many other places, is that the world moves too damn much. It changes too damn much. And so we can't set a set of rules like, hey, if it's more than $5,000 and it has anything to do with Romania, then, you know, flag it and don't yeah. let it go through until an analyst, you know, looks at it. Okay, that's viable, but there's got to be some company with offices in Eastern Europe where we're just flagging things over and over. So it's not necessarily about the hard rules, it's about difference. And so being able to coax out patterns of normal is one kind of big and and certainly fruitful application in large banks and, and certainly all the credit card companies, the, the Amex and cities and all those folks. Mm-hmm. We can keep shuffling, but if you want to poke into that one, we can. No, I think that's, uh, it makes perfect sense. This is something that damages everybody. And as you said, to date, it's been simple, hard rules, like let's flag a country and an amount. And the number of completely legitimate use cases that you capture in that exception management is just, it's, it's daunting, right? And it's also yeah. not necessary. So I tell you what you're saying. It's, you know, the, I always say that the great thing about AI in the future is that hopefully you'll be able to perform compliance on a, on a level we've never imagined because we can't yeah. see these patterns. Yep. Yep. And, yeah. and now there's, there's the adversarial potential future scenario, yes. Jason, where AI can generate the seemingly innocuous transactions that will allow laundering to become easier for them. So I I foresee this as just as much of an adversarial circumstance as it is today, just with both parties having more tools. Does that make a happier, friendlier world? Geez, I don't know, Jason, but you know, I'm not going to be out of a job anytime soon. <laughs> that's, that's at least yeah, 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 yeah. So that's um, I dislike that that's reality, but I can't. Yeah, that's just kind of hmm, everybody's going to try to get there. So yeah, so that's one. We could talk about a few others if you like. Yeah, let's go. Let's uh, give me some other tangible ones that people would be cool. you know cool, cool. effectively so, live directly. Um, so here's a couple others in just broadly in the finance space that are relevant. Another one in the customer service side, Jason, is not so much in necessarily a full-blown conversational interface where whatever you want to ask at whatever level of granularity, you're going to get a system to give you an awesome response. I'll tell you this, if that nut ever gets cracked, retail banks will be one of the first to crack it because we have a lot of very predictable and similar customer service requests. Um, And we have large, large, large sums of money. And it happens to be about reasonably similar things. You know what I mean? We're not selling clothing. It's not 
some random sneaker model that's never going to come up again. Now, sure, you might have anomalous and time-related stuff, but a lot of the time it's about accounts and it's about dollar values. So we're sort of, we're dealing with reasonably stable entities in terms of what the machine has to understand, but conversation in robust depth, you know, asking, you know, a chatbot, you know, let's, I'll articulate a level of wacky detail that's just like absolutely stupid to presume you could have a machine answer right now. So you could ask something like, when did you mail this terms of service thing to me that got me to agree to this because I don't remember this? That's going to be tough. Like they may not, it may not be able to pull from mailing records or something. And if you have some kind of bickering argument with that, it may not know how to tactfully tell you like you're just being grumpy about it. You know, there isn't, there's no, it's not going to deal with all circumstances. So where it is handy, so where customer service, in my opinion, probably like the lowest hanging fruit in the customer service world at present would be in properly routing incoming tickets and requests. So essentially making sure, can this get in front of someone who handles delivery problems? Can this get in front of someone who handles refunds? Can this get in front of someone who handles login issues? Can this get in front of someone who handles just so that customers shouldn't have to label it when they go in, a machine should be able to interpret it as it goes in and route it to the proper party. Now, I will say, Jason, that there are some questions that are so doggone repeatable and so doggone rote that, yes, we should have one or two or three kind of ticks down the path of a certain line of questioning because they're so common and they are capturable. They're not massively capturable. And so we can knock some of those dead and we can do routing, and that is valuable. The expectation that we are going to converse with a machine is a stupid expectation and will remain stupid for, uh, I would estimate, years. Yep, for a number of years. But I sure hope we get there because obviously that would represent a gargantuan degree of cost savings. But these are complicated systems to set up to some degree or more complicated than than I think what, what maybe most business leaders presumed. But at least the level of capability that I've articulated is both viable and currently in action in a great many places in finance. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's simple another iterations, simple limitations like what's my balance or did I pay this bill this month? I mean, those simple kind of data mining things, that's easy, right? And I kind of, yeah. uh, what you're talking about here kind of reminds me of what I've heard about. I'm not even sure they fully implemented this yet, but the chatbot that Domino's was developing. You talk about a, a company that's got even fewer number of kind of variables they have to deal with, like the size of pizza, what goes on it, and that's yeah. it, ordering now or later, right? Like that is a perfect use case for some sort of AI chatbot. And apparently, I mean, all I ever heard from early reports that was like 97% accurate. So I totally get that. And you know what? But you're, dude, you're right. I'm calling because I'm angry about these kind of things tying together. <laughs> We're a long way from that. Yeah, multi, multi-context things that happened six yeah. months ago and then today, and then something about your wife's login that you want to ask yeah. about. It's like, Boom, you know, you're just going to see sparks yeah. fly out of that friggin' machine. So, yeah, not, not <laughs> happening anytime soon. But, yeah, you have your infamous, we have a great article called Chatbot Use Cases That Actually Work, because that, that is still the rarity here. And, yeah, you do have examples like Domino's. You have examples like, uh, I believe, 1-800-Flowers. It's been maybe a year yeah. or so since I wrote. Where, yeah, you have, you have, you know, only so many possible variables realistically. And so it, it is possible to transact. Again, we're not talking about Macy's. We're not talking about... 18,000 versions of a red shirt. We're not talking about that. It's like, do you want roses or, I don't know, chrysanthemums or something? I don't even know any species of flower. Well, even even with like Alexa, right? Like you can tell it that you need batteries, but it's going to default to Amazon Essentials unless you tell it something else, right? It's all about the context of the variables and we're not going to get there given the complexity levels, right? All machines will behoove their masters (laughs) unless, uh, unless you... 
you give it other instructions. Yes, <laughs> you can plan on using anybody else's AI tool. It is for the sake of the master. Uh, accept sure it, it and live with it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it is what it is, is what it is. Yeah. Um, so we got at least one other really big one that I think is relevant across the, the swath of finance, Jason. I'm happy to sure. poke in with yeah, you. Means, let's go. It's a very large, very viable application with, with current day ROI is in the domain of uh, kind of loan or insurance underwriting, so assessing risk. So right now, I mean, insurance, as far as, as I know, and, and we, we do a ton in banking and we do a ton in insurance. Those in addition to life sciences and, and defense, although we don't get to write as much about what we do in defense. For, for <laughs> I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that one's confidential, but go on. Yeah, yeah. But those four sectors are the biggies for us. And insurance, I mean, man, if there was ever an original big data business, isn't insurance it? We're talking yep. about uh, huge volumes of information about people and about claims and about fraud in those claims and about payouts on those claims and about relative risk assessments and different statistical methods to suss out those risk assessments. And obviously, in, in giving out loans, we have to make similar kinds of assessments, looking at factors of a person and their history and the markets and whatever else, and come up with some reasonable number here in terms of interest rates, uh, in terms of kind of dates to, to pay back by, in terms of factors we want to include into the giving or not giving of this loan. That can now be informed with a lot more data sources. So it is possible to not just know that, let's say I'm a 30-year-old male with, I don't know, who drives XYZ kind of vehicle and lives right outside of Boston. There may be ways, you know, who's, who's a non-smoker, for example. With machine learning, the promise here is that we can look at potentially the customer's history with the company in much more detailed ways in terms of their purchase activity and their behavior and their interactions with the company and have that potentially inform the risk model in some way. There might even in the future, and I, I suspect today this is being done to some degree, there's work being done on kind of taking the third-party data that's on the internet, including potentially yep. social media, and figuring out how to factor this into uh, potential risk models. There's that one app out of Africa that does lending. That does yeah, lending, scanning yeah, yeah. That, uh, you're scanning your phone and all your like. It, they have all kinds of data points, like how often you call you you basically call your mother and how often you press for pornography, and they all yeah. think of yeah, what and, kind of borrower and, you are. You can see the privacy issues. A lot of um, yeah. so a lot of the time when things like that are being um, presented as morally okay. And by the way, I'm not necessarily arguing for or against the application that you're talking about. I, I don't yeah. really have a dog in that fight. Um, but it is opt-in. I mean, it, it is, it is, it is exactly. That, that's the whole thing for me. It's like, okay, if it's hidden on page 406 of the terms of service, now I feel like you're being sneaky. But if it's like, hey, we read your stuff, we figure out if we can give you a loan. It's like, if you walk in through that gate, it's like, I, I have pretty much zero sympathy for you if you later on feel violated or something. So yeah, yeah I feel like it should be perfectly kosher, but Informed a lot of the time when consent. it's brought, exactly, a lot of the time yeah. when it's when it's brought up to be kind of presented as as a good thing. I think, you know, if Geico let people know maybe everything that they were doing it would be a little bit more bothersome. But in the in the yeah. developing world, the big reason there is that we don't have other data points, right? So this person in Kenya, this person in Zimbabwe may not have a rich and robust history with bank accounts and a rich and robust history with credit cards. So we just don't have those proxies. And so we need to find some kind of risk proxies based on other elements of them that we think could tie and correlate to related risk. And if we get enough people's data and we see how they all end up performing with money, good and bad, you know, we can suss out potential patterns, Obviously, a lot of that's going to move its way to the developing world. You know, there's similar things in India, but a lot of that similar enrichment with new data sources is being added to our, our first world here. And we have auto companies 
who are aiming to integrate sort of the data from these, these IoT devices within vehicles to get a yeah. sense of people's driving performance and how they move around. Now, those are still, that, that's not a perfect process. Obviously, I, I know someone uh, relatively close with me who, who keeps their progressive like IoT device in their father's glove box because he only drives around <laughs> town once every three days, you know? Yes. So there's, there's definitely gamings of that system. And I, I don't think that that should be overlooked or pretend that it's perfect. But I will say that in both banking and insurance, newer approaches are being implemented to risk. And it's, it's quite inevitable that that'll be a very major trend. Being able to gauge risk and, and garner margin is the name of the game in, in loans and insurance. And being able to inform those models with more data and, and beat out competitors by a fraction of a percent is worth market share and it's worth big, big money. Yeah. So, well, I've um, had a so those are three, this recently, yeah. actually. So, I mean, I actually recently had some difficulty with a bank for a business loan. Went to a crowdsource lender who basically asked me for smarter information, in my opinion. They linked up to my bank account. They linked up to my accounting software, profiled me inside of 24 hours and basically got me a rate that was comparable. And I actually just sat through a, um, I was at a conference the other day and it was a presentation from uh, one of the, from a, from a governor of the Philadelphia Fed who was talking about how lending circles, uh, credit rating reports used to basically correlate about 80% with FICO scores. And now it's only about 30. And because of their better modeling and lower default rates compared to FICO scores, they're able to lend to people a more marginal credit that would otherwise be left out in the cold before. So, I mean, I look at these at these data points and this kind of thinking as, as being not only, you know, in term, good for efficiency and good for profitability, but my goodness, it's also basically better servicing the end consumer by opening up the market and considering data points that were never looked at. That's totally true. So yeah, we talked about the developing world, but we should also talk about young people, right? You talk about opening oh, yeah. up the market. I think that that's, that's a big part of the promise here. So loans and insurance is one of these kind of super inevitable shebangs. I'm not of the belief right now that the insurance companies that will dominate the field will necessarily have better risk models per se that much. I think at some point there will be a leveling and probably the market share game is going to be done with more of the customer interfacing stuff, which is, in my opinion, even more nascent today. Absolutely. I think that that's going to be what determines the uh, the real winners, the real money winners in the future. Yeah. But I do think the whole game of loan and loans and insurance is going to shuffle up, 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 up with more and more data sources. And I think we're seeing plenty of that today. And yeah, you just brought up a great example. And I think that's a good representative one. So yeah, those are three that for me, Jason, feel very real. And, and are kind of, without a doubt, a big part of the future of finance. There's a lot of newer ones, but those are three nice ones. And it's interesting because what we're talking about is really more so behind the scenes. It's infrastructure, right? It's basically the companies working on making their own internal efficiencies substantially better to improve customer service and to improve their profitability. I find that the more customer-facing stuff has been more kind of nascent at this point or very, very in its infant stage, right? I mean, look at the, some of the stuff like integrations into Alexa where, like I said, it's just basically it's going to tell you what your balance is. Well, that's that's a great yeah. first step, but it's a very small yeah. baby step. And it's, it's it, it makes sense, though. I mean, they, they already see how much they spend every year, and they're trying to figure out ways to make that more efficient. So that's kind of what we're seeing now. Let's talk about how this is going to transform the industry in the next, you know, it's called five to 10 years. How do you see the proliferation of AI technology basically changing both the experience for consumers and incumbents, but also like what key areas do you see driving that? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, we think about kind of sectors in terms of the capability space of those sectors and finance. There's so many different capabilities. Do we want to talk just for my knowledge with you here? We want to talk about, let's say, banking, insurance, or just finance broadly. Hey, you know, let's, the future of finance writ large, what do yeah. you think are the big trends? Let's look at com consumer facing stuff. So let's talk about banking, insurance, investing. Sure. Let's look at those three. Cool, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, again, right now, the conversational game is very mediocre, uh, mediocre okay. at best here in terms of 
how much we can actually get done with chatbots. I don't really in the next two years foresee voice to be that much more important than trivial things in terms of like, you know, bank balances or did I pay this bill or the same kind of very simple questions you could ask via chat, I would suspect is what you're going to be able to handle with uh, via voice. The IVR systems might become a little bit more uh, intuitive. My guess is there's a lot of money to be made here, Jason, in optimizing the onboarding of, of new customers and in sort of following up and upselling and cross-selling and preventing churn. So mm-hmm. that sort of the same sussing out of patterns that we talked about with machine learning. So we, we figure yeah. out what is the pattern that tends to lead to fraud, tends to signal fraud, or, or tends to signal, let's say, loan risk. We can also suss out patterns of what tends to lead to customer churn. Or we yeah. can also suss out patterns of what are the leading indicators of someone who may be open to also buying this product or also opening this account. Um, We've seen some I don't mean a uh, Wells Fargo style opening account. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, let's not, let's not go yeah. creepy with some fake ones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Anyway, the, uh, but we've already seen some of that. I mean, Salesforce, when they launched their Einstein, one of the first implementations that they used on Financial Services Cloud was the ability to data mine every data point they had, including tonality of email to determine scores and percentages of probabilities that the client would stay or leave. So, yeah, again, this like, was U.S. Bank, right? Return. This was U.S. Bank? Well, U.S. Bank, I think, was one of the first customers of Salesforce to implement that. And I think yeah. since then, Merrill Lynch and a couple others have, but it's being driven by Salesforce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I haven't actually looked at the case study. So interestingly enough, Jason, I was in Salesforce headquarters Friday. So less than a week ago. The, the new in tower? The, yeah, the big, big building with all the, all right. the, the funky rooms and the bears in them and stuff like that. And uh, talking to folks from Einstein about what it's like to sell into the enterprise as well as some of their use cases. So I, I have one of their PR folks who's supposed to be sending me uh, the U.S. bank example in depth. Yeah. Now, without reading it in depth, as an analyst, I'm always going to be skeptical until, until you give me the use cases and I get to ask you questions about it. I won't tout things one way or another until I get there. But yeah, I will say that certainly garnering sentiment in, in email is, is not a Salesforce-specific magic use case. I mean, this is something that this has done stuff. I mean, you know, their ability to potentially integrate it into CRM writ large, I think, could be very handy. I'm not downplaying what they're doing by any means, um, but I'm just yeah. saying that, yeah, sentiment, a sentiment is example. a thing. Yep. Sentiment is a thing. Lead scoring is a thing. Being able to know when and how to prompt someone to make another purchase or when and how to prompt someone to engage in a way that will reduce churn risk. I think that the way to win customers and then win more deals from those customers and prevent them from leaving, I think that more so even than a lot of like the, let's say, loan or or risk estimation stuff with machine learning, I I think that those customer-facing things on closing, upselling, retaining, I think these are going to be the levers of market share for those companies in, let's say, the next five or 10 years. Like you said, a lot of it's nascent right now, customer facing, but I think it's only going to bump up. And I think that Salesforce is just the tip of the iceberg of a whole lot of interesting upgrades to how we deal with customers in, in big clients. And I'm glad you mentioned Wells Fargo because, I mean, these are, again, these are powerful tools. And, I'm, you know, I hear sometimes I talk to consumers about this and they look at me like, you know, you're going to just gonna find other ways to make money off me. Well, no, the answer is that's one way to look at it. If I actually come at it from the perspective of how do I better service you or take care of you, right? It, it comes down to, I think, what's really going to determine who's going to win that space, as you said, is the customer-facing interaction. Is Are they taking this technology just to try to sell you the accounts you don't need? We'll beat on Wells Fargo again. Or are you basically using that information to try to enhance the client experience? And you know what? When they don't need you for that, you walk away from it. Yeah, I, I think um, share the sentiment of your optimism. I think yeah. the future will imply probably a good deal of both. It is comfortable. like It feels good to go to bed, Jace. There's a lot of things that feel really good to go to bed. One of them is that ultimately 
the actions of other parties are for benevolent aims and that the winners are always those who are ideally benevolent. I think it certainly makes us look good, Jason. Me and you yeah. could look like really virtuous guys by, by touting those kind of beliefs. I read a lot of biography, and so I, I'm unable to believe it in history and stuff. But, you know, fingers crossed, you're right. And I think certainly in the age of the internet, when somebody does screw up and, and does, let's say, kind of gaff their customers or mislead people, at least the hammer of punishment comes down really quick with the Very Twitter hard. storms and everything yeah. else. It's, it's not, it doesn't have to wait for some uh, big, long legal shebang. So on the aggregate, I would hope that there would be more good than bad in terms of yeah. the incentives behind innovation. And so I'm going to have my fingers crossed that you are right, sir. I'm optimistic. And again, I think this is a role where we, I've discussed this in the past with other people about the changing role of financial advisors and planners in this work market. And a lot of someone else I interviewed talked about how all this information and all the nudging that's going to happen on the behavioral side to push people in different directions is going to give them different signals from different companies. And frankly, still having a trusted person in the middle to be, basically be able to filter through what is sincere offering versus, you know, the self, uh, self-interested offering is going to be valuable. Yeah, I think particularly in the financial advisor space, I mean, it's not most of our work is in insurance and banking, just yeah. because that's where the a lot of the, the money is. But financial advising world, I certainly am not of the belief that, oh, well, that's a bygone job. Now, I do, I would say if you're undifferentiated and at the bottom of that market, I don't really yeah. like where you sit. And that, I could say the same about a lot of markets, but I could definitely say the same there. I mean, you know, in terms of millennials being able to use these robo things and all the all the rest of that, I am I am a millennial, I guess. So I can't. One hundred percent. I totally get that. I mean, if your sole value proposition is this is the portfolio you're in, I'm going to bug you for money from time to time. That's not worth one percent, and the robo is going to execute at a far lower price point, better experience, and better convenience. A hundred percent. Yeah. So so like you you said, the convenience and the actual kind of service there. If you are at a level where you can provide that, if you're at a level and, and with a market that can value that, obviously moving up market makes a lot of sense. Same thing for real estate agents, to be frank. I think they're in similar shoes. I agree. And you're, you know, you're seeing that, I think, probably first and foremost in your company with the likes of uh, uh, Zillow getting into the open door business as well. So it's uh, it's interesting dynamic changing workplace. So that was one key area. What other areas in banking, or let's call it investment, we haven't talked much about the investment space. How do you see, do you have much experience there and how uh, AI is being applied? Yeah, I mean, wealth management and whatnot, sort of, I would say this. So I have one caveat on the investing side that I think is worth noting for your crowd, and then, and then some potential thoughts about where this is going to go. I don't see as many signals that are as strong in investing as I do in, let's say, insurance and banking, in part because I spend more time there, also in part because I think it's many of the applications I, I think are either a bit newer in terms of where ML is being applied and or money is made in the dark in the investing space. And so analysis of the same degree of rigor will get you only so far, right? Money is made in the dark in investing. That's the whole yeah. ballgame. Whereas the insurance um, so world, like, it's all risk model, then everything's a lot more. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's a little bit more kind of yeah. like hypothetically, if I knew exactly, let's say whatever the most successful hedge fund is, hypothetically, if I just if I knew their exact moves and I could model it, then, then I would make the same amount of money. The same can't necessarily be said of Amazon. Like if I run an e-commerce business, oh, surely if I do exactly what Amazon does, I'll make money. And so insurance is a little bit, or, or sorry, investment. <laughs> investment is a little bit more yeah. guarded because if you know their steps, then you win. So with Amazon, if you know their steps, good luck trying to implement them, go, go eat it. That's exactly. pretty much you know, where, where they could stand. So yeah, so for investing, one big caveat here in terms of trading, okay, we'll talk about trading. Uh, the whole automated trading shebang, there's a lot of kind of noise and in our, in our experience, a lot of the, any consumer-facing applications in the automated trading space with machine learning and AI-related buzzwords are, are just 
total gobbledygook. We did a whole piece on like the Forex market involving AI, and it's just full of companies that don't involve AI at all. And it's and anyway, even if it did, though, there's problems, and I'll tell you why. So here's the thing about trading, and this is like an, an AI understanding example for, for the audience, is that trading is not looking at the data that you think it is. So, so we would think, okay, I see these candlestick charts. I see these yeah. prices going up and down. These are exceedingly quantifiable things. Candlestick charts and, and, and prices going up and down. Okay, I've got these dashboards in front of me. Can't I find the patterns here, predict them in some way, and then make better investment decisions? There may be some cases where you can. It's very clearly a risky business. Here's why it's hard. It's hard because those candlestick charts and prices aren't coming out of your computer screen. They're coming out of the world. Let me tell you what I mean. The reason the candlestick charts are moving is because there's more shipments of fruit from Cambodia this month. There's more people getting scared about something Elon Musk tweeted. There's a general sentiment of gloom in the sector that you're operating in. It's the wintertime, and people yeah. tend to be more flimsy with such and such in the wintertime. So we're talking about, literally, Jason, you'd have to suck the world into a virtual model and predict it in order to predict the stock market. Yep. And to be honest, Jason, if I could predict the world, I would have much better things to do than make money. Good talk to me. Um, I would just, you would just be God, right? You, yeah. you would be God. So Absolutely. if you could be God, then you wouldn't need money and you could do much more interesting things. Money would just be such a petty thing if you were a deity. So because you'd need to be a deity yeah. to really thoroughly understand what's behind candlestick charts, the idea that, oh man, pattern recognition, we can do it. Yes, if the baseline data you're training it on is the real, is like- Is the all-encompassing data going yes, into the actual- Exactly, if, that, if that's all-encompassing, right? But these are, what we're trading on is tiny proxies of much more complicated, in fact, infinitely complex um, things. And so I think the, it's important for the audience to understand that, Jay. Yeah, so in terms of everything you're, you're seeing in the AI space, what's the most positive, optimistic viewpoint you have? Like, what's the thing you've seen that gives you the most hope for the future? Oh, man, wow. Well, thanks for making me think about that. I, uh, <laughs> I, probably, I got probably four more questions to make you think. So I, I probably naturally swing the opposite way a little bit too much. So this is this is a good. Uh, I'm going to ask you that afterwards. Good, yeah, you're really you're really throwing me on my heels now. Okay, man. let's feeling, start with negative. What's no, no, it's all good. It's all good. No, I'll, I'll run with you. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shirk your question, Jason. I'm <laughs> courageous. Enough. We were gonna come back. To well, in terms of the dynamics, I'm optimistic about. I guess so. One thing that I think in general is good, and I, geez, I hope it continues, is there's pros and cons, so there's kind of two elements to this. The general connectedness of the research AI field, so like the people kind of moving the field forward, the fact that there's a lot of international collaboration and a lot of international kind of referencing of innovation and kind of connectedness there. I think that that, the militaries of, let's say, the US and China, which I think about a lot, I don't think have the same kind of inherent buddy buddy like oh this guy did something cool like they're cool too like i'll shake their hands and like be actually friendly not just like a front of the camera friendly or whatever i think that having an actual sense of general camaraderie for the field writ large i think that is a little harder outside the english speaking world i think europe almost entirely speaks english if you're doing ai Berlin or yeah. whatever you're, you're going to be fine doing english like you're, you're okay you know like paris ai scene like you're going to be okay montreal you're going to be okay so it's a little bit farther out, outside the English-speaking world, but that writ large, there's so much collaboration that it really doesn't feel like we're all building our own little secret Sputniks and, and kind of doing things for our specific country or company. I'm not saying that's always bad, but I'm saying it, it definitely fosters an arms race dynamic and an othering of other people. 
I think there tends to be kind of a fun and sharing vibe and that that's kind of an enforced norm among the folks that are pushing the research forward. So in general, I like that that's the case. I certainly hope it continues and, and maybe even expands more thoroughly to, you know, outside the English speaking world as well. Okay, good. All right. Now let's talk about the, the other side of that. What's, what worries you the most about the application of AI? Yeah. Well, what worries me most is that it's just a big power game. So the place where you would go to win. So if you if you want to win on Earth, like if you want dominance in kind of the highest level on this planet anyway, I don't know what it would look like uh, outside of this planet, is you would want to control the substrate that controls, that houses the most powerful artificial intelligence. And that these various and sundry efforts, like let's say OpenAI, or let's say what Google's up to or whatever, or, or what the DOD is going to be up to, are jockeying for control of what will be the hyper-capable sort of entity. Even the ethics efforts, the folks that are smaller, that can't build the AI, their best thing to do is pretend to be virtuous and talk about virtue up at the big guys. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think on the aggregate, it's a good balancing factor, but I'm pessimistic that it's actual virtue. I'm more optimistic that it's an attempt for power. So if you're Robespierre, Jason, if you're Robespierre, you can't command armies but you can tout to purport the values of the people and you can try to depose the king and you can cut off enough heads to do that. But then once you sit on the throne, then you don't try to knock over the apple cart anymore, right? Like you're revolutionary until you get to the top and then you goddamn stop. So if you're small and you can't build AI, then what you do is you try to point a finger at the people who are accumulating the power and sort of the AI ethics thing, I think, is a really, really big swirling attempt to do that. I don't think that the movement itself is wrong. I just think that it's folks that don't have a chance to control the deity who sure would like to control it or, or yeah. like to at least not be harmed by it or, or be at its behest. So I think the next 40, 50 years, I'm pretty pessimistic about sort of what's going to happen species-wise, and that's probably the big stuff. Excellent. Perfect. So you consult into a lot of major companies and major organizations. What are the biggest challenges they face in implementing better AI procedures or implementations within their organizations? So biggest challenge. I'm going to give you one that I hope actually isn't talked about that much, but that I genuinely believe to be the biggest challenge. So you'll often hear, well, the data is really tough to get it all organized and all that stuff. And then there's another one where it's like, well, the talent is really rare and these PhDs are hard to find and these, these data scientists are hard to find. Both of those things Totally true. I'll give you a third one that I honestly, in my heart of hearts, and and there's many folks that work with bigger companies who share the sentiment, believe to be a larger challenge. And that is the culture of innovation and iteration required for AI. Let me tell you what I mean. So if I do IT, Jason, what I do is I get a solution, I plug it in, I integrate whatever I need to integrate, and then I just run it. It just does whatever I bought it for, right? It's a, that's what it is. Now, look, sometimes that's kind of complicated. Sometimes there's setup and integration stuff, but I, I plug it in. I instrument it the way that I need to, and then I run it. That's IT. AI, which is different than IT, requires I need to have data architectures and data infrastructures that are built out to feed me the relevant features that I would require to coax out patterns to improve both performance in some way, shape, or form. So what does this require? Well, it requires the folks with subject matter knowledge in all these different silos to sort of have a, a garnered understanding of the value of data to have a garnered understanding of what and how to store things potentially so that it could be fruitfully used. It requires- it convenient for them. Yeah, convenient for them yeah. for just like a basic dashboard or something or yeah. for compliance issues, right? I mean, some yeah. things are stored just so they're not we got the bigger it. picture, they're seeing their own involvement. Yeah, so, and can you blame them, right? Because like, look, five years ago, Jesus, I mean, they didn't have to care, man. They didn't have to care. And so that's a big cultural thing, but here's what stacks up on that, Jason. So you need those subject matter experts 
to know how to kind of orchestrate and maybe understand the value of data, they also need to have enough lingo commonalities here to interface with our data science team. If we do hire data scientists, you can't sit eight of them in a room with PhDs and just say, hey man, look, go out and ask for whatever data you need and just like build stuff that's good. You know, here's some goals we want to reach, just do AI. No, you need the teams that are involved in those projects and those spheres of the business to interface frequently with the data scientists and to understand how to speak with them and what problems to give them. So the subject matter experts don't know what problems are AI solvable. So it's like, okay, that guy's an AI PhD. Cool, you're brilliant. Go do your thing. I already have my job. Bye. There's no baked in way to ensure that there's actually that congruence there with those different groups. And then here's the big crescendo here, Jason, is that AI doesn't plug in like IT. In other words, if I want to do a lead scoring model or I want to build out a recommendation engine or I want to build out my own custom conversational interface for my customers, I'm going to have to construct it and test it. And it's going to be probabilistic. I'm never going to have with IT. And if I have like a Marketo account, I click send, it's going to send an email. Not 92% of the time, but 100% of the time. If I click on the home button, it's going to take me to the home. Those are 100% likelihood things. You know, 99.99999, it's it's almost, it's functionally 100%. So with AI, we're looking at a probabilistic sort of understanding of things. And so we're not talking about 100%. We're talking about maybe six months, nine months, maybe 12 months to get things to the confidence intervals required to push it live and make our team use it, to push it live and make our customers use it. That, Jason, is hard. That's science. We have to tinker. We have to iterate. We have to rethink. We have to look at our premises. We have to tweak our features. And that is not what people think of as IT. So the leadership oftentimes is going to say, what is this? What is this wacky junk? What is this garbage? Make it do its work. But mm, the iteration involved, Jason, to be honest, If you don't have the culture, then you can't stomach the science, in which case you ain't implementing it. And there's a lot of people that think these big companies are just going to have to die or they're going to have to do acquisitions with teams that already have those dynamics because it's very, very hard to change them. It's a big cultural change. I mean, it's it's taking, in a lot of ways, it's taking an IT department, which was never developed to think strategically in this manner or to basically run essentially as an run as a laboratory, for lack of better terms, and get them to do that. It's, yeah, it's, it's a big ask. So if you could change one thing about the industry or what it is you do, what would it be? Hmm, about sort of the industry of market research, the industry of AI. The industry um, of AI. Yeah. Or your yeah, job specifically, uh, well, like the one wish that you could change. Anything. Oh, man. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Excuse me once towards the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. The one thing I wish, I mean, for AI. Well, you know, okay. So I think there's going to be a progression in AI where, it's going to become easy, then cheap, then ubiquitous. That's going to be the, the transition. It's going to go one, two, three. So my wish is that a lot of these applications that require tremendous amounts of wizard skills just to kind of get to a baseline and, and get anywhere at all um, yeah. will become easy because I think then, then the accessibility, you know, that ubiquity, that, that third point is going to actually yeah. become accessible. So I have my fingers crossed that algorithms will be developed that require maybe less data in order to kind of garner meaningful patterns and that sort of the transparency of algorithms will be able to be developed. I think the, counting on timelines for hard science developments versus market developments, I, for me, is very wishful, uh, kind of yeah. crystal balling here. So, so I'm not, I'm not uh, purporting any timelines. But if I have a hope, Jason, those are some hopes because I think that'll make uh, a lot of this a lot more accessible and understandable for folks. And that makes sense. I mean, the, the reality is that's the normal progression of most technologies. I mean, you know, I host my website on Squarespace, $18 a month. For something beautiful that would have cost a bloody fortune before to actually individually code, right? 
you know, oh, yeah. there's countless yeah. examples of that where, where something that was super complicated and super expensive technologically 10 years ago now, I mean, AWS, you know, there's another perfect example of the, the, the you know, before you could spend tens of thousands of dollars on services to start a business, now you just need a computer. Yep. 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 So last question before we wrap up, what excites sure. you the most about your job, this space, what it is you're doing? What's your favorite thing? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? Well, there's the really big game stuff of like, you know, prevent arms race dynamics and species catastrophes, but I'll talk friendly with you. I won't talk about big goals. I'll talk about midterm okay. goals. So, so preventing, um, preventing the world from blowing up, that's one thing. Go on. <laughs> yep. Creating an aggregately beneficial trajectory for intelligence and sentience itself would be a better way of wording it. And not, not just catastrophe avoidance, but the midterm goal would be really sussing out ROI at a deeper level. So what gets me out of the bed in the morning is figuring out of the whole possibility space, capability space within given sectors, what has traction and is going to become inevitable. This is what our research focuses on. We're doing actually a huge project in banking in this space right now, which is really interesting, and finding those proxies for for traction, for the applications that actually pay for themselves, Jason, versus the things that probably for the next three years are just going to be money sucks. Finding those hints, those details, those critical insights certainly is exciting for me. And I think it's probably the most valuable thing for the, for the folks that we work with as well. And again, finance is a big focus there. So yeah, that's what I dig, man. I mean, in terms of day-to-day, that's what I dig. Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure everybody's going to find this fascinating. And thank you yet again for your time. Yeah, take care of yourself. Glad to be here, Jason. So that was my interview with Daniel Fagello from Emerge. Hope you enjoyed that. As you can see, the world holds a lot of very interesting AI applications, uh, none of which in the near term are going to involve Skynet taking over. So we can all sleep easy for a little while at least. And with that, I'm Jason Pereira. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.